My friends, no story ever written for the screen is as dramatic as the story of the screen itself. Let's all go to the movies. It's the fourth episode of the history of film. Last episode, we left off with W.K.L. Dixon and Thomas Edison presenting their kinetoscope to the world, and the first kinetoscope parlors opening in North America. Today, our primary focus is how these movies were made, what they were, and how they impacted film history going forward. Thomas Edison put W.K.L. Dixon in charge of film production, and so in some ways, Dixon became the first filmmaker. And when I say that Dixon was in charge of production, I mean everything involved with film production. Dixon was the lead in casting, writing, set design, and actual filming. And the kinds of movies Dixon made were designed to be surefire sellers. Remember back in episode 2 when we discussed Dr. Paula Martinez Cohen's work? She wrote about how many people in the late 19th century and early 20th century saw the photograph not as a created work of art, but as a representation of the real. Cohen's metaphor of photographs being a kind of paper money backed by a gold standard of reality is an apt one. This erroneous idea was never strictly true. To present one potent example, famous American Civil War photographers moved bodies to make their pictures more impressive decades before the rise of cinema proving very early in the medium's history that no record ever necessarily has been inherently and wholly honest only on its own merits. The same holds true for early faked ghost photographs. Nevertheless, photographs being real was the kind of mindset that movies were blossoming in, and this new kind of media would be even more real. After all, they could move. We made that small digression because this is clearly how Dixon and Edison thought of the film camera a way to reproduce real entertainment, and make some sweet money off of it. It would be years before people began to see movies as works of creative expression, just as the book existed long before the novel. And so the first movies would have to be recordings of entertainment that people were already willing to buy. Look close. That must be nice. I'll tell you one thing, though, Dan, I'd treat her a whole lot better than you do. I'd feed her better, I'd, I'd get her pretty dresses, she'd be real happy wearing. I wouldn't make her work so hard, Dan. You know, I bet she was a real beautiful girl before she met you. Dixon set to work making movies, but did so with limitations. One of the most important was sound. Unfortunately for Edison, his vision of the kinetoscope to be a visual accompaniment to his phonograph proved unsuccessful. Syncing the two temperamental technologies together proved to be a mechanical nightmare, and keeping them perfectly in sync was beyond the limitations of the era. So sound was out. Any kinetograph recordings would have to stand on their own, purely visual merits. 
Second, the kinetograph camera was extremely large and heavy, and so was unable to move. Anything shot on the giant machines would have to be taken from a fixed viewpoint. Third, Edison was buying rolls of film in 50-foot strips from George Eastman, and a lot of them. While 50 feet is long for a fruit snack, it is pittance for the length of actual film needed to make a movie. For the amount of frames per second needed to produce the persistence of vision effect, 50 feet of film only allowed for about 20 seconds of actual moving picture. Very soon, cameras would be modified to hold 150 feet of film, about a minute of movie, but that was still not very long. In addition to these issues, films would be hard to see. Specially designed sets would have to be made, not only to provide enough light to actually capture the recording on the strips of film quickly moving through a lens and shutter for exposure, but also have enough contrast to make them understandable to the viewer. The earliest movies took all of these limitations into account. We will tackle all of the limitations and requirements aforementioned, but in this case, the last shall be first the technical limitations of actually making a studio in which film could be shot. Edison gave Dixon $600 to create a studio that would make the most out of the kinetograph. That doesn't sound like a lot today, but it was a significant amount of money in 1894. According to the CPI Inflation Calculator from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics website, $600 had the equivalent buying power of $15,783 in 1913 as of June 2020. That's the furthest back the website can calculate. The value of the $600 would have been even higher in 1894. With his new funding, Dixon led the creation of a studio that would bring the potential of the kinetograph to life. What Edison Labs came up with was a kind of spooky monster building that loomed ominously in New Jersey after its construction was completed in 1893. I kid somewhat, of course, the structure that would prove to be the world's first movie studio was brilliant, but when I get a look at it, it always strikes me as intimidating. I will tell you some of its features, and you can make up your own mind. Of course, images of it will be on the episode 4 show notes of our website, historyoffilmpodcast.com. The building built for the kinetograph films had a large interior, with its walls tar-papered black to provide the maximum amount of contrast for white performers. The issue of actually getting enough light into the building was solved by creating a large window that opened up at the top of the roof. I can hear a murmur, a question rising up from the audience. How do they shoot film at all? Even with the roof open, the sunlight would only be able to shine directly on the subject being filmed for a few hours a day. Well, the clever fellows at Edison Labs thought of that too. The studio was built on rails and could be turned to let in sunlight all day long, improving efficiency. I can hear another question. What did they do when the weather wasn't sunny, like when it rained, or snowed, or was just too cloudy? The answer to that is... they just didn't. It was an incredible building on rails, but it wasn't able to change the weather, and it wasn't usable unless the weather conditions were perfect. This little fact will be important later as it is one of the primary reasons aspiring filmmakers and film studios in the United States would eventually pull up their East Coast roots and move to Hollywood, California. The studio that Edison and his company built would come to be known as the Black Mariah, because supposedly it looked like a police wagon of the day, which were commonly referred to by the same name. And I've gotta tell you, I kinda see it. To me, no matter how I look at it, the building will never exactly look like a police van. 
But when you read about it, you get the feeling that more than looking like a police van, working inside the Black Mariah felt like being in a police van. Reportedly, even Edison himself described working in it as a ghastly affair, but it worked. Just imagine the thick air of a New Jersey summer, with the heat of the sun beating down on a building covered with black tar paper all day long. It's hard to call it an appealing idea. No doubt that contributed to its naming, particularly with a taskmaster like the ever-results and profits-driven Edison. But I've spent far too much time talking about the shortcomings of what would come to be known as the first movie studio, something that would be impressive even if it was a 10 by 10 shack. The Black Mariah was an amazing structure, and it would serve Edison and his filmmakers for years to come. And they quickly started making movies. And can you guess what movies they started making? That's right, vaudeville. How far is Winnipeg from Montreal? Miss Winnie, you, sir. How far is Winnipeg from Montreal? Ah, a gentleman from Canada. <laughs> You're welcome, sir. <laughs> Winnipeg, the third city of Canada and the capital of the province of Manitoba. Distance from Montreal, 1,424 miles. Am I right, sir? Quite right. <laughs> Vaudeville checks off all the boxes that we discussed earlier. Vaudeville entertainers were people who audiences were already willing to pay for, because the idea of making wholly original content that existed only as a movie didn't really exist yet, it made perfect sense. The fixed camera wouldn't be a problem. After all, audiences watching the acts live on stage would have a fixed position too. If anything, the fixed camera served to make the representation of vaudeville depicted on the kinetoscope more accurate to its analogous stage act if perhaps less dynamic than more sophisticated camera movements would soon allow. And the lack of sound wasn't a huge issue either. There were plenty of short stage acts that would work perfectly for kinetoscope presentation, including stage beauties, strongman acts, magicians, and dancers. True, excerpts from stage plays and musical acts wouldn't make the cut, but that sacrifice would be more than made up for by the sheer novelty of watching a film itself. Edison was in business. As early as 1893, Edison began making some kinetoscope demonstrations, but for our purposes, the first Dixon film was a little marvel called Fred Ott's Sneeze, filmed early in January 1894. It was a five-second movie of an Edison lab assistant, Fred Ott, who sneezed after taking a pinch of tobacco snuff. One could make an argument that it was the most important sneeze in modern history. It certainly makes the top ten. Fred Ott's sneeze was only the first of the Edison-Dixon movies made for commercial release. The Black Maria began to print in full swing. Like I imagine I will always be complaining about on this podcast, I wish this was something more than audio. The earliest films of the Black Maria are lovely, but difficult to analyze and not very fun to listen to descriptions of. Soon, filmmakers like the Lumiere brothers would make brilliant early films, and their work lends themselves more naturally to analysis. For many early Edison films, what you see is what you get. And you should see them. The Edison-Dixon films are the first moments of lives etched into silver. People like Sando the Strongman flexing his muscles for the camera, or the dancer Annabelle Moore in her butterfly costume sweeping across the stage. 
They are a remarkable sight to behold. Even our humble friend Fred Ott is remarkable, because he was actually making those movements. True, the lower frame rate of the kinetoscope compared to modern phone cameras can be a bit distracting. But here I would like to make a plea to you. When watching any of the films discussed on this podcast, try to do so with two minds, or maybe more. Watch the films and see how they relate to now, how they shaped film history, and even the world. And pay attention to how they make you feel, how much you enjoy them, and why. But also try to see through the eyes of people that they were originally meant for. The people viewing these short movies were the first people to see movies at all. Imagine how remarkable it must have been for them. ほう。やはり5秒期か何か。しかしそれ以上揃って3人ともが本日に限ってお差し支えあるとは。いや、これはまた期待な。妙なことも。I will, of course, put these videos up on the website and the Facebook group for discussion as soon as I can get all that together. The Edison-Dixon films, however, are not mere boring footsteps on the evolutionary chain that would lead to Roman Holiday. There are several essential Black Maria films that demand discussion in a comprehensive film history course. To begin with, let's look at the 1894 film Glenroy Brothers No. 2, also known as Comic Boxing. This is a simple little visual comedy gag in which the eponymous brothers box in a way intended to make the audience laugh. This film, and others like it, are important to note because it demonstrates that film has always been used to record acting, or people pretending to do something that the audience is being allowed in on, rather than performing directly to the audience. It's not a dance or a magic show. The brothers are not looking into the camera to simulate looking at an audience. True, this is still a recorded stage act, and it's far from a piece like The Waterer Becomes the Watered, which we'll talk about within the next two episodes, but it shows that film was never a simple record of a sneeze or a talent show alone. Second, let's look at two animal films, both from 1894, Cockfight and Feline Boxing. Both of these movies are definitely not vaudeville acts. They demonstrate a few things. First, many more modern views on animal rights and animal cruelty are not shared by large swaths of the film-going audience of the late 19th century. Cockfight is a truly small snippet of a recorded cockfight, between two roosters, ostensibly to the death. Comic boxing, perhaps a little better, I guess, as the cats likely aren't trying to kill each other, but they're still real animals being made to fight on film for a widespread audience appeal. It would be a long time before the message, no animals were harmed in the making of this feature, would be proudly displayed at the end credits of virtually every major feature film. These two films show things that film could do that would be important later. The first is to record footage of an actual event, in this case a cockfight, with an unknown ending, and show it to a wide audience. The cockfight wasn't a vaudeville act, or a recorded performance. It was a fight. This is one of the earliest examples of a kind of filmmaking that would grow into sports photography, war reporting, and even newsreel footage. Now an event, not just a performance, that people wanted to see could be seen by a large audience. 
As for feline boxing, more properly and ostentatiously called Professor Welton's Boxing Cats, it demonstrates two things that movies could do well that other forms of entertainment until this point had struggled with. The first, and less important in the case of this particular film, is the capacity for films to provide truly absurd entertainment. Movies would eventually reveal that they were magic tricks in and of themselves, but it would take great magicians like Melier to do so. This is a film of cats in boxing gloves being made to fight in a ring, at the prodding of who I can only assume is Professor Welton. This wasn't just a cockfight, it was something else entirely. Movies added this to their repertoire, holding the cards of performance, acting, live events, and now even silly gags in any combination. In the case of feline boxing, a live fight and a silly gag. More importantly, a large audience was actually able to see the cats duking it out. Imagine how small the cats would look for people trying to see them from the back of a large auditorium. For this reason, boxing cats would make an unlikely option for large vaudeville halls. But with movies, the audience could get a <clears throat> close-up view. This demonstrates that movies were already able to show a wide audience something not just that they wouldn't have the opportunity to see, but likely not the ability to see in a more traditional entertainment setting. The close-up, as we know it today, wouldn't really be born until the dawn of editing. But filmmakers were finding things that only movies could do well, basically since the dawn of movies. Next, we'll spend a little bit of time with a young woman named Annabelle Moore in her 1896 film The Serpentine Dance. Annabelle Moore and her movies are important for a couple of reasons. The first is that she was one of the earliest examples of what might be termed a movie star. Her earliest films were recorded in The Black Mariah in 1894, but she remained popular and in demand for film recordings many years afterwards. This demonstrates that as long as there have been movies, audiences have wanted to see their favorite performers return to appear before them again. Annabelle would be in movies until her retirement from the cinema in 1912. The Serpentine Dance is of particular interest, though, because of its visuals. For one thing, the flowing movement of her white skirt and dress against the pitch backdrop of the Black Mariah makes for an impressive display of contrast and movement in early film. But more importantly, Serpentine Dance was often hand-painted, frame by frame, to give viewers a look at Annabelle's dress and flowing color. Painting each frame of each print of a film was a painstaking process, but it would become relatively common for films to be hand-colored until the rise of color film in the early 20th century. Film had hardly been born, and already there was attempts to color it, and even add sound, but we'll talk about that next episode. Film technology has never stood still. Ambitious filmmakers and engineers have always been trying to push the boundaries of what the actual technology of film could do to keep audiences entertained and to keep the money flowing in. This is yours. Keep it, Majesty, if you want. It's already here in my head. What? On one hearing only? I think so, sire. Yes. Show us.
Finally, we will end with another 1896 film, The Kiss, starring Mae Irwin and John Rice. This is a little movie where the two actors just named perform the ending of a then-popular play, in which they nuzzle their faces for a few seconds, speaking intimately, and the character played by Rice pecks the character played by Irwin on the lips. For modern audiences, it reads as a sweet and intimate portrayal of affection between characters of middle age, which is notable in and of itself. Just two years after the introductions of movies, they were already being used to give audiences looks at emotion and romance that movies would eventually become so famous for. Also important, though, is that it was the first kiss ever recorded on film and shown to the public. It caused a stir among critics, who found it to be inappropriate, but it was also popular with audiences. Movies had already found out that courting controversy was an easy and effective way to become noticed and make a little extra money. Edison and Dixon made a lot of these films, and these are only a few, and most of them not even that important compared to the whole catalog of films produced by the Lac Mariah. But even in its earliest infancy, movies as we know them today were beginning to take shape. Next episode, we will move our narrative forward with the people and innovations that would make cinema leap from the confines of the kinetoscope to the glories of the screen, and meet two brothers whose names couldn't shine brighter in the annals of film history. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Film podcast. If you'd like to contact me, you can do so at historyoffilmpodcast at gmail.com. The website for the show is historyoffilmpodcast.com, where you can view helpful videos and links to understand some of the things that we talk about each episode. We'll see you next week for another exciting episode of the History of Film.